drive us to action, Lord God, and we continue to see your revival on the streets, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Okay. Oh, look, that is up there. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, uh, we've been, over these last um, two or three weeks, we've been um, thinking about things that, uh, and teaching into things that God has been speaking to us about personally, some of us on the team. And uh, so uh, there's a bit of coming and going. Adam's down in Dawlish teaching this morning. Uh, um, so, uh, uh, Lord, we just pray for him, that you would give him grace and wisdom to be able to communicate your heart to them. And uh, it's good to have guests here with us. I want to say a warm welcome to my Australian fan club who've come over here specially. <laughs> not really. <laughs> uh, well, they're here from Australia, but uh, not yet my fan club. Um, so I want to share something that God has been speaking to me a little bit about. And uh, I decided to call it Praying with Fire and Fear. I'd been studying um, and just reading personally uh, the stories around Elijah. Um, and some of you will be familiar with, if you know your Bibles well, will be familiar with the story of Elijah and Mount Carmel and all that stuff. For others of you, that'll be lost on you. So we'll go through that um, and pick out some lessons as we go along. Firstly, uh, a 60-second um, uh, background check, um, just so we understand the context into which this guy, Elijah, the prophet, uh, appears. Um, Israel had their greatest king, King David, who'd wholeheartedly followed the Lord. And he'd established Israel as a really great and powerful nation within that region. But though his son Solomon started quite well, and uh, his wealth and his wisdom were kind of legendary, despite some very specific warnings from God, Solomon decided to embrace idolatry. He followed other gods. He didn't follow the, the true God, the Lord, Yahweh. He didn't follow him. He, he decided to borrow some gods and embrace some gods and idols from the surrounding nations. And really from then, things just went from bad to worse. And the whole succession uh, of kings after that followed in that sort of way with just one or two rare exceptions. They basically embraced idolatry. The nation uh, rapidly split into two parts, Israel and Judah, and they were always warring with each other or in conflict with each other and with the surrounding nations, and things were not good. And into that situation, God raised up people who would speak for him, prophets, who would bring, perpetually bring warnings to the people and to the kings particularly, or the rulers, um, saying, don't do this. Haven't I told you not to follow these other gods, small g? But they were largely ignored. We don't know all the names of those prophets, but there were whole communities of them. It's clear there were sort of groups and bands and communities of, of prophets who tried to bring back Israel's allegiance to God, though with limited success. And then a guy called Ahab becomes king, and it's in uh, 1 Kings 16 um, is where I'm reading. So Ahab, son of, son of Omri, did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all who were before him. And as if following in the sinful footsteps of Jeroboam, his father, were not bad enough, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians. Sorry, Coralie, I didn't mention the names. 
Then he worshipped and bowed down to Baal, who's one of these false gods. And he set up an altar to Baal in the, in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made an Asherah pole, that's a sort of idolatrous thing, and did more to anger the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Jezebel, Ahab's wife, um, and with his support, she proceeded to murder as many of the true prophets as she possibly could. And she tried to impose false gods on the people. And into this horrendous situation, this guy Elijah appears. We don't know very much about him. We just read in uh, chapter 17, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba, Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as certainly as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there will be no dew or rain in the years ahead unless I give the command. Perhaps the first thing to note is the remarkable authority with which, a, uh, with which Elijah speaks. He doesn't say, as you and I might, you know, I think I'm sensing from God that maybe the climate could be about to change a little bit. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even say, God says there's not going to be any more rain until he says so. He actually says, there will be no dew or rain unless I give the command. An amazing level of authority. You see, God's word and Elijah's word, God's heart and Elijah's heart, God's will and Elijah's will, they were so closely aligned. And that's where authority lies. Authority comes from alignment. When our wills, our hearts, our minds, our thinking are so aligned with God, then we can speak with authority. And that's not a matter of technique. It's not about using the right form of words or speaking in a loud voice or anything like that. Authority comes from the intense and persistent intimacy that Elijah had developed with the Lord such that he could state quite categorically, I'm speaking on behalf of God, before whom I stand. Before whom I stand. Intimacy is so crucial. And so there's a couple of questions I just want to sort of start off by, by throwing out for, for me and for all of us. Do I actually desire the sort of intimacy that will take me to a place of authority? Is that something I actually aspire to? And if so, what practical steps am I currently taking to begin to grow in this? How am I learning to stand before the Lord? You see, it demands intentional actions, deliberate obedience on our part. It was, last week we had some response time and people put all sorts of uh, aspirations and desires and commitments in pieces of paper, wrote them down and put them, uh, brought them to the front. I haven't looked through them all and many of them are quite appropriately anonymous, but there's a lot there of people saying, I want to be closer to Jesus or I want to know him more, I want to commit to him more. But it doesn't happen automatically. 
It has to take, we have to take deliberate steps. We don't just unconsciously absorb intimacy with Jesus by hanging around this building or these people. It doesn't just sort of get sort of absorbed into us by just being around YCC or any other church. We had a prayer weekend last weekend, and as Jan has said then and, and previously, we need to learn to dig our own wells, to have our own resources, to put our roots down personally deep in God. If we want to speak with authority, if we want to be aligned with God, we need to seek intimacy with him. And that takes deliberate steps of obedience. So, <coughs> um, maybe there's things even right now that you want to think, well, I did say I wanted to do that thing, but I haven't quite got around it. I mean, some people do New Year's resolutions, I don't know where you do, but maybe you decide, I really want to be more intentional with spending time in prayer. Okay, how's that going? The things God's wanting to prompt you about that. And so then we come to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. And I'm going to work through the passage and just pick up some lessons as we go. But I would encourage you, because um, I found it helpful, to, um, to read through that whole section, 1 Kings 17 through 19. Um, take some time to read through the whole passage and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. The reason I say that particularly is that um, when we're dealing with prophetic people, and Elijah is the kind of absolutely typical um, most typical prophetic person we find in the Old Testament. It's often not merely their words or even just their actions through which God speaks. In some sense, quite often, their whole life is somehow prophetic, expressing something of God's passion and God's purposes. So to get some of that, you want to read it. So, at God's command, Elijah, who's been hiding away for these three years of this drought that he had prophesied, um, boldly challenges King Ahab, this evil, idolatrous king, to a confrontation on Mount Carmel. And with absolutely outrageous courage, he tells Ahab to bring the 850 false prophets of Baal and Asherah and to have a contest there. The crowds of people uh, wanted to come and witness this. They were quite keen to see, well, this, this is going to be interesting. wonder how this is going to go. And Elijah actually talks to the people as they all gather around on the top of this mountain in Israel. And he says this, How long are you going to be paralysed by indecision? If the Lord is the true God, then follow him. But if Baal is, then follow him. Then it says this. But the people didn't say a word. See, there are times when we need to get off the fence and decide who we're really going to follow. And the people here weren't really there. Well, yeah, we quite like this one, we quite like that, and we, well, we could do this, and there's pressure to do that, and there's time to get off the fence and decide who we're going to follow. And that might be a matter of obedience for us as believers, that God's been talking to us about something for a while, and, and we haven't been answering him a word at the moment, because we've been hedging our bets. 
Or it might be that you're not even, not even a follower of Jesus yet and you've been putting off that decision. There's a time, it might be now, to get off the fence. So all the people gather around Elijah and Ahab and these 850 uh, false prophets. Um, and Elijah's on his own and there's crowds of people watching and the contest involved building an altar and getting an animal sacrifice and sticking it on the altar and, uh, and then asking God or Baal to burn up the sacrifice, to supernaturally zap it from heaven and uh, burn up the sacrifice. And that would surely prove who was the true God. And they let the, uh, the 850 prophets of Baal uh, go first. So it's 850 to 1 against Elijah. And the, all the false prophets, uh, if you may remember, if you do know the story, uh, they spend hours and hours in a vain attempt to get Baal to respond. They shout and they scream and they get themselves into a frenzy. And because it was their, their sort of practice, they would mutilate themselves, they cut themselves, um, in a, trying to persuade this false god Baal, false demonic god I might add, to respond and answer by fire. And increasingly, as it goes on and nothing happens, um, Elijah starts mocking them and suggesting they should perhaps shout a bit louder because Baal was obviously asleep. Um, throughout the afternoon, it says in verse 29, they, they were in a, an ecstatic frenzy, but there was no sound, no answer, no response. And finally, they admit defeat and give Elijah a, a turn. I missed that, sorry, but whatever that was. So Elijah makes things harder for himself by setting up an altar and putting the sacrifice on there and then drenching it in water several times over until the whole thing's absolutely running with water uh, just to make it abundantly hard. And then he simply prays, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have, and have done these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are the true God and that you are winning back their allegiance. And then fire from the Lord fell from the sky. It consumed the offering and the wood and the stones and the dirt and licked up the water in the trench and when all the people saw this, they threw themselves down on their faces to the ground and said, the Lord is the true God. The Lord is the true God. Lesson one, praying with outrageous confidence. That was Elijah praying with absolutely outrageous confidence. And sometimes we're able to pray in that way. And we simply make a simple request of God. I mean, Elijah only prayed, I think it was about 59 words or something. That, that was the extent of his prayer at that point. None of this sort of shouting and screaming all afternoon, which the prophets of Baal did. Elijah, just a simple, brief prayer. But because he was doing it in alignment with God and at God's request, simple prayer, things happen. Amazing, amazing, outrageous confidence. In the New Testament, that kind of level of confidence would probably be described as having a gift of faith when we pray. So what can we learn from that? 
You see, Elijah makes clear that he was doing this at the specific command and specific instructions of the Lord. He wasn't putting the Lord to test, which is what all the people were sort of trying to do, you know, ask God to prove himself. We're not supposed to put the Lord to the test. He was doing that as God's, uh, at the specific command of God. To step out with courage and confidence and prayer, we need to know who we truly are and what God has instructed us to do. Elijah knew who he was. He was somebody who stood in the presence of God. That's who he was and had received his instructions. If we're going to pray with that level of outrageous confidence, we need to know who we are, who we are as royal sons and daughters of the king. And we need to know what he's instructed us to do. Now, I know what happens at this point. Say, oh, yeah, but I don't know what God's asked me to do. I can't do that because I, I don't really know what he wants to do. And that's true sometimes. We don't necessarily know specifically what he wants to do. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes that's not quite true. It doesn't all depend on some amazing subjective impression that I have about what God wants to do. Because the truth is, in many situations, we do know what God has called us to do. Jesus has given us some very clear instructions about what he, what he wants of us and through us and in us. He's been quite clear in lots and lots of ways. Both directly in his words and through his teaching, through his apostles. We do know quite a lot of what he wants to do. We can pray with confidence for quite a lot of things. Sometimes I, I fear for myself that I spend too much time asking God to confirm something that he actually has already made perfectly clear. If God has made it perfectly clear what he wants, I don't need to ask him again all the time. So moving on. Then Elijah told Ahab, go up and uh, eat and drink for the sound of a heavy rainstorm uh, can be heard. So Ahab went up to eat and drink and Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel and he bent down towards the ground and put his face between his knees. Just visualise that one for a minute. He goes up there, bends to the ground, put his face between his knees and he's told his servant, now go and look in the direction of the sea. So he went up and looked and re returned and there's nothing. There's nothing. Seven times Elijah sent him to look. On the seventh time, the servant said, uh, Look, there's a small cloud the size of the palm of a man's hand rising from the sea. And Elijah then said, go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariots and go down because, so that the rain won't overtake you. Meanwhile, the sky was covered with dark clouds and the wind blew and there was a heavy rainstorm. Lesson number two. Agonising persistence in prayer. Agonising persistence in prayer. You see, based on what Elijah had clearly heard from God, he boldly tells Ahab that he needs to hurry because the rain's coming. But notice, he did that before there was any external evidence of anything. They were in a drought, nothing was happening, and yet Elijah was clear what God was intending to do. There was no physical evidence at that point, but Elijah commits himself to some serious praying to see what God intended happen. And this time it's different to when he was praying uh, before the altar, you know, where he just uttered a brief prayer, a few words, and it was all done. This time he has to really agonise in prayer. 
He bends down towards the ground and puts his face between his knees. That suggests something of real intensity about his praying. And some people have suggested, I think it's probably true, that the physical posture that uh, Elijah adopts is actually, in that culture anyway, a birthing position. It's what a woman would do in that culture, giving birth. It's that kind of position. Elijah was committed to birthing a breakthrough. And if we want to see breakthrough in certain situations, in lots of situations, we do need to be prepared to agonise before God to bring to birth breakthrough. Surely you say, well, God has been clear that the rain is coming. Why does it require this sort of agonising prayer? If God wants to bring the rain, then surely that's going to happen. Elijah knew it was going to happen. But it's not quite like that. You see, I don't necessarily understand all the reasons, but some things, even things that God desires to do, nevertheless require us to agonise in prayer if they're to actually happen. Because in prayer, we partner with God to see his will done on earth as in heaven. It's a bit like uh, Pete Gregg says, uh, we played the prayer course, and many of you will have seen that. Uh, Pete Gregg, who does 24-7 prayer, and he, he makes the point that there are some things that God really wants to do, but they'll only happen if we pray. And there are some other things that he really wants to prevent, but they will only be avoided, or they will not be avoided, if we don't pr- unless we pray. There are things God wants to do, or to prevent, but they actually rely on our partnership. It's not a done deal, we need to agonise and persist to see them through. But yes, Elijah has to persist. Six times he has to go, I'll get his servant to go and say, can you see something yet? Can you see it? Is it happening yet? Nothing to see. Nothing to report. How many times would I have done that before I gave up? You know, when we're praying for something... After three or four times, maybe, I'd have got that one wrong. Learning to persist in prayer. I was reading something um, uh, a few weeks ago from from Jackie Pullinger. Um, Some of you will know she, a brave woman who went to Hong Kong as a young lady and worked in the walled city amongst the drug addicts and the sex workers. And... uh, Amazing story and uh, remarkable uh, demonstrations of of the Lord's deliverance there. Anyway, she was doing an interview and uh, the interviewer asked her this question. He said, when other people travel to Hong Kong to work with you, is it true you want them to be able to speak in tongues and that it's almost a prerequisite? You know, it's almost something that you, you have to do to be allowed to go. I mean, I was vaguely aware that that was a gift that she valued highly and I was kind of expecting her to answer that, uh, that question from the interviewer um, with some very, very wise and incisive theological answer of why it was really, really important to be able to speak in tongues uh, and, and some you know, deep biblical insights. Here's what she said. No, it's not a prerequisite. The prerequisite is, would you like to help pray somebody off drugs? Okay. Now, can you manage four hours of praying non-stop? Tongues would be a really great help. That's it. It's not that tongues makes it special. It's just quite hard to keep going 
for that length of time in your own language. And that kind of puts it in perspective. I mean, lots of stuff we could say about tongues, but actually persisting like that, agonising persisting, is sometimes necessary if we're to see the breakthrough that we long to. But then there's also that little incident about when Elijah sends his servant there and he's got the size of a man, like there's a little cloud seeing. Not much to report. You see, we could agonise for God for powerful breakthrough, but we need to celebrate small beginnings. We need to notice when God's starting to do something and celebrate it, rejoice in it, grasp it, say, yes, that's it for Elijah. He could just see that little cloud. That was enough. He knew that the thing was settled. And sometimes, sometimes when we're praying for breakthrough, we, we get to a point where, yes, I now know it's settled. But we have to persist and we have to keep going unless God tells us to stop. And I... We need to celebrate those small things, those, those little victories, those little signs that God's worked, the baby miracles. We want to see bigger ones, but we need to celebrate the baby ones to start with. The, cl- the cloud just the size of a man's hand. I was, uh, we had a leaders meeting on Tuesday and we were praying into various things. One of the things we were talking about was how much we desire to see God's power more and more evident at work in our community amongst the homeless, amongst other people, and, uh, and really breaking through in healing. And we long to see this. Keith sent me a message. Uh, Keith was, was there uh, with us. And on his way home, he stopped off at Tesco's. And he said, uh, he then sent me a message later that evening. Just had a great moment with a homeless guy who comes to YCC during the week in the Tesco car park. He asked me to pray for him because, he said, every time someone prays for him, good things happen. That's good. It's a little thing, but let's celebrate it. Let's rejoice in it. Let's grasp it. Say, that's a good thing. That's a beginning thing. That's a baby miracle. That's a... It's a small thing, it's a cloud the size of a man's hand, but we're going to go with that. We're going to grasp that and learn. Okay, (coughs) sorry, I'm running over. You might think that uh, after this amazing triumph on Mount Carmel and after seeing the breakthrough and the rain comes and if you read the passage, uh, Elijah then does a 50-kilometre sprint uh, amazingly, and you might think, oh, well, Elijah will be feeling really, really awesome now, really epic and sort of super confident and unstoppable. Just not like that. Verse 39. So Ahab told Jezebel, his wife, that all that Elijah had done. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah with this message, with this warning. May the gods judge me ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like the life of the, prophet, the false prophets who got murdered. Elijah was afraid, so he got up and fled for his life to Beersheba in Judah, and he left his servant there, and while he, went, while he went for a day's journey into the desert, and he went and he sat down under a bush, and he asked the Lord to take his life. I've had enough. Now, O Lord, take my life. After all, I'm no better than my ancestors. He's just had these amazing experiences. 
But lesson three is praying through vulnerability. You see, after a series of spiritual and emotional highs, Elijah's scared. He's exhausted. And frankly, he's depressed. Even some of the most awesome biblical characters get depressed. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not claiming to have any kind of special expertise in that area. But in this passage, it's not hard to see some of the things that lead to that. Lead to that vulnerability. And my personal observation is that those people who are most particularly spiritually sensitive can be most particularly prone to vulnerable vulnerability. So some of the th- reasons for Elijah, he was spiritually drained. After the encounter on Carmel with, uh, with those false prophets, he was spiritually drained. That happens. Some of you will know if you've been doing stuff with Jesus and for Jesus and in the power of the Spirit, you feel really tired afterwards. He was spiritually drained. He was emotionally exhausted. He'd had all these kind of conflicts with with Ahab and with Jezebel and with the the crowds of people and their expectations of him and, and they were all looking at him and all weight of expectation was on him. He was emotionally exhausted. And he was physically spent. He'd done this 50 kilometer sprint okay supernaturally but he was still human he was absolutely wiped out physically he just couldn't keep that up indefinitely and into that situation then into that mix comes Jezebel the one person it seems who could press all of his buttons who could get past all of his defenses and who could undermine his confidence Perhaps she carried some especially powerful spiritual ties. I probably suspect she did. Elijah could handle Ahab. Jezebel, not so much. At least not in his weakened state. We need to recognize that whatever victories we may have experienced, there are times when we can be vulnerable. And we need to look for the signs and know the signs so that we're forewarned about those moments. We need to know the the factors, maybe the same as Elijah or maybe specific to us, that trigger this for us. And notice how kindly God deals with him. See, after complaining bitterly to, to God and saying, Lord, I've had enough, we read this. Elijah stretched out and fell asleep under the bush. And all of a sudden, an angelic messenger touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked, and right there by his head was a cake baked on hot coals and a jug of water. You can almost taste it, can't you? He ate and drank and then slept some more. And the Lord's angelic messenger came back again and touched him and says, get up and eat, for otherwise you won't be able strong enough to make the journey. So he got up and he ate and drank. You see, God provides for Elijah's physical needs in a beautifully kind way. And from there, Elijah goes to Horeb, a mountain. It's actually Mount Sinai, where Moses got the Ten Commandments. To a place where he felt spiritually safe and he had some time out with God. I think when we're feeling exhausted, when we're perhaps feeling depressed, 
no expert, but we need to learn to receive kindness for our physical, our emotional, and our spiritual needs. And God wants to be kind to us. Sometimes he can be supernaturally kind to us. Sometimes he'll be kind to us through people. Sometimes we just need to learn to be kind to ourselves. At those moments, we need to receive kindness. And at those moments, we need to be aware that our perspective can get a bit skewed and uh, we need to avoid making rash decisions. Elijah says, oh, Lord, take my life. The Lord had no intention of taking his life. And the Lord's assessment and valuation on, on Elijah wasn't that, oh, you're just no better than anybody else. The Lord valued him enormously. So our perspective gets skewed when we're feeling flat, feeling down, feeling even depressed. And we need to avoid at those moments making rash decisions. I was going to go on and talk about the encounter with God at, uh, at Mount Sinai, but I think I'd better stop now because I'm way overdue. So uh, maybe we'll come back to that, about how God wants to uh, met with Elijah at that point. And the still small voice. Remember, some of you remember that. But the thing I guess I want to leave, just leave you with then is this. Elijah went through all that. He could pray with outrageous confidence. He could agonize to see breakthrough and persist in prayer. He could come through that period of emotional vulnerability because he was somebody who'd learned how to stand before God. And we need to go back to that uh, right at the beginning when I said, do we really want to have that level of intimacy where we stand before God? If we want that, and we need to determine what steps we're going to take, what changes we're going to make in our lifestyle, our diary, our alarm clock, whatever else it is, to make that happen. We need, as Jan would say, to dig our own wells. So can I have the band up now? That would be great. Thank you. And while they're coming up, can we all stand? I'd like to lead us in prayer. Holy Spirit, I pray for any of us who may be perhaps sitting on the fence, not willing to decide whether we're going to follow you or obey you in some specific, or whether we'll just try to hedge our bets. Will you put your finger very specifically on those things in our lives that you want to challenge us about? And Lord, will you help us to confront the issue of whether we really want intimacy with you? Whether we really desire that, whether we're going to pursue that, whether we're going to be those who stand before you and are therefore able to speak with confidence and authority. Will you deal with our hearts and deal with our wills and help us to remember in the rush that happens when we have coffee afterwards, what commitments we want to make this.